Amen. And happy midday. Does that work? Happy midday. It is good to see you all here this midday because it's just past noon. So we started in the morning. Now we're afternoon. We don't really know what to call it. Glad you're here with us for the third service. And uh, I want to say and, and just get used to me saying this more and more often going forward how appreciative I am for those of you who are able to come to this later service or even to the earlier um, 815 service. Um, doing so allows um, for our 10 o'clock service to have more room for visitors. That tends to be a popular service time. And so it's really, um, we really appreciate those of you who are able to do it. Some of you, it just works out better, but others are doing it to create room. We really appreciate that. Um, about seven weeks ago, we started a marriage class during the 10 o'clock service, and that created some room in that 10 o'clock service. And, uh, and so what we found is that that's, that class is still going on, but the 10 o'clock service has filled back up. So in just a few weeks, that class is going to let out. Some of you are in that class, and we're anxious for you to be back in the services in the 10 o'clock hour if that works for you. But just know we're back in overflow seating in the 10 o'clock hour, and the class is not uh, dismissed yet. So all that to say, as we go forward more and more, we're going to need to scoot in and make room and potentially consider going to other service times if that works for you and your family. If it does, just know how much we appreciate that. It allows um, for us to continue to live on mission, inviting people to come be a part of our church the more we do that. So thank you for that. Uh, it is an exciting morning. We're going to get to celebrate in baptism uh, this morning with uh, somebody coming to be baptized. I'll introduce to you later on. I'm excited about that. Um, we had a great um, all-member meeting this past Tuesday evening. And uh, if you got to be a part of that, it was kind of a small crowd, but it was a really exciting time. Um, we, we strive to make an effort to make sure the business of the church is never separated from the mission of the church. And so we started with just some testimonies and a few folks sharing redemption stories. And once again, just, just overwhelmed by all that God is doing as he works in the lives of the people here in our church, um, writing a better story with our lives than we can write ourselves. And so the beginning of that uh, all-member meeting, we started there listening to testimonies of, of those who are just encouraged by what God's doing in the church, those who are, are being set free from addictions, just on and on the testimonies are coming out. And so we're so excited about that and what God is doing. We talked about the, the future. We talked about attendance and budgets and all that kind of stuff. But ultimately, um, what we're excited about is what God is doing and the amazing redemption he's bringing to our lives. And so I also want to say this. If you are interested in becoming a member or finding out more information about what it means to be a member so that you can make that decision, we have a Connect class coming up on October the 26th. It's a Wednesday night. It's at 6.30 in this room. So on that evening, Awana ministry will be uh, in full swing over in the other building. Our student ministry, 7 through 12, will be down the hallway and upstairs. And in this room, uh, all the adults will gather who are interested in becoming members uh, to, to walk through the Connect class. And I'll be leading that. We'll be in here from 6.30 to 8 o'clock. And again, no obligation. Uh, this is just a chance for you to learn more about the church and what it means to be a member here. And then from there, we want you to pray and seek the Lord on what he would have for you and your family. Um, but if, you're, if you think you might be attending that class, um, if you haven't yet, would you let us know just so we can get enough binders printed? Um, they're, they're fairly thick, and so we want to make sure we get enough of those ready to go for you. You can do one of two things. Either fill out the Connect card and just indicate on there you want more information about becoming a member, or um, you can put your name on the list back in the Connect corner at the column. There's a little wooden desk there, and there's a sign-up sheet there. If you just add your name uh, to that, it'll allow us to have the right head count for that class. Okay, so that's October 26th, Wednesday night in this room, 6.30. All right. Well, we're going to get started in Acts chapter 4 in just a moment. Acts chapter 4. 
If you want to go ahead and turn there, feel free. If, uh, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, but you would like to have one, we put Bibles under the seats around you. And as always, those are a free gift to you. We want you to go home with a copy of God's word. So feel free to snag one of those and write your name in it, take it home with you. Um, we're going to get started in Acts 4 in just a minute. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to finish Acts chapter 4 and start Acts chapter 5. And we're going to hit one of, from my perspective, one of the most difficult texts in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And before we get there, I want to I start by laying a foundation for what we're going to encounter in this story from the Old Testament. So I'm going to start in Isaiah. We'll look at something from Isaiah chapter 1, and then we'll look at Isaiah chapter 9, and then we'll be ready to start Acts chapter 4, and we'll move on from there. So if you just want to follow along on the screen, you're welcome to do this. So in the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, God issues a warning to the people of Israel, and it's a warning about their worship. In the very beginning of Isaiah in chapter 1, starting in verse 11, we read these words from God. God says this, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure the iniquity of the solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Now that's a pretty strong warning from the Lord that the worship of the people of Israel had become a stench in his nostrils and a burden to be born. Now in Isaiah 29, we find out more of what, what's going on that causes God to feel this way about their worship. Look at a few verses from Isaiah 29 with me. We'll start in verse 13. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near to me with their mouths and they honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. So here what the Lord is saying is, this is the reason why your worship has become a burden to me. You're doing it out of obligation, your words are just lip service, and your hearts are far from me. You're just going through the motions. You're just coming into my temple out of obligation, walking through the rituals, walking through the motions, but there's nothing going on in your hearts. It's not the blood of bulls that, that I'm after here. It's not, right, the grain offerings or how much money you bring in. It's not all these things. It's your hearts that I want. And so as we move into Acts chapter 4, what we're going to read are two contrasting stories. At the end of Acts 4, we're going to get a description of, of hearts, the hearts of the people who have trusted in Jesus, how he has radically transformed their hearts, and it's being poured out in generosity towards one another. And then we're going to read a story in chapter 5 of Acts where it contrasts that, where there's a couple that scheme together to lie to the church and to lie to God, pretending to have hearts that are changed, but they really don't. And here's what I want to say as we look at the story and the unfolding of what happens. We're going, to, we're going to read about money. Can I say this to you? Money is never about money. We're going to see that clearly today. 
Money is never about money. It's always a matter of the heart. Matter of fact, that's the sermon title today, A Matter of the Heart. Let's get started in chapter 4 of Acts. We ended last week with the church after, after being persecuted and being told to quit talking about Jesus. They pray, oh God, make us bold. And so this is the very next verse, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now, I love where Luke starts here, because before he gets to the full description of what's taking place with generosity and people are just taking care of one another's needs, what Luke wants us to see is that this truly is a matter of the heart. All those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Now, this is going to contrast with the couple we're going to read about in chapter 5, a couple that was pretending to believe, pretending to be Christians, but they truly weren't. And so Luke starts with the matter of the heart. He says this, now the full number of those who believe. This is kind of a, this is a big phrase. If you've been in the sermon series with us, you know that in chapter two, we started with 120 believers. Okay, about 120. The Holy Spirit comes on these believers powerfully. The apostles begin to teach about Jesus in such a way that by the end of chapter two, you've got over 3,000 believers followers of Jesus. We read in chapter two that they were, these 3,000 were devoted to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. And we also read what? That from there, their lives became incredibly generous. That as Jesus had transformed each of their hearts, they responded in generosity, and everybody had everything in common. Remember, we talked about that. Common possessions, what's mine is yours. What do you need? I, if I've got it, it's yours. A common rhythm for life, right? Because they were rooted in what? This common faith in Jesus. Well, by now, this group of Christians has grown to over 5,000. So when Luke writes, the full number of those who believe, that's a big crowd of folks, right? And he describes this full number of those who believe were of one heart and one soul. And one of the ways Luke says that you can know this about them is that what? They have begun to loosen their grip on their possessions, the way he words it here, that no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, right? What's mine is yours. They had everything in common. Now, we're going to read verses 33 through 37 and see this play out in more detail. But before we do, we've got to stop and we've got to acknowledge that what's happening here is a description of, an outward pouring of, what happens when a person encounters Christ, Look at what he says next in verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. That theme has been consistent all throughout Acts so far. God was doing many wonders and signs through the apostles. Look at what Luke says next. And great grace was upon them all. To fully understand what's taking place here, we've got to understand what he means by great grace. Not just this common flippant idea of grace, but a great grace, a grace that is deep and wide and immeasurable. Because see, each of these believers we're reading about, each one of these folks struggled in sin just like you and me. It wasn't their ability to be holy, their ability to be highly moral, highly committed, 
It's not what we're being talked about or not we're being pointed to here. What we're being pointed to here is the fact that each one of these believers had encountered something that Luke calls great grace. So what is great grace? Great grace is that place where you find yourself in desperate need of forgiveness. When you come to the place in your journey where you humbly and honestly admit you cannot please God on your own by your own strength, your own merits, by fulfilling obligations. See, this is where the people were in Isaiah. They were going through the rituals trying to please God and impress God, and they were keeping their obligations, but that had become a burden to the Lord. So when you come to that place in your journey where you realize, you know what, God, I can't get this thing right. On my own strength, I continue to fail. There's no way I can please you, no way I can be faithful enough to earn your favor. I need help. And so you encounter the forgiveness and the love and the grace of Jesus, and he says, I can help you. I can be strength where you're weak. I can be holiness where you're sinful. I can cover over a multitude of sins. You know, that, that feeling inside where you kind of push back and like, well, but Jesus, but I've got a pretty thick rap sheet. I mean, I got a lot of sins in my life, and Jesus says, I know. That's why my, my, my death was dramatic. It was huge. I was dying for all of them. And in this, we encounter the great grace of God that says to you, you're right, you are unworthy to be loved, and I love you anyway. You're absolutely right. There's nothing within you that would cause me to want to call you mine. But guess what? I still want you. You don't, you don't look like a daughter of mine or a son of mine on your own strength, but God says, but I want you for my own. And so when we trust Jesus, we are bought with a price. We are not our own any longer. We encounter the great grace of God. We, like the early church, sing how marvelous, how wonderful is what? Your love. The love of God is not like any love I've ever encountered by any human being here on earth, including my mom, including my wife, including my boys. They all love me more than most of the people here on earth, but their love for me can't touch the love of God for me because God sees me as I am and he loves me still, right? When he has every reason to withdraw his love and say, I'm not gonna love you, you're unworthy. God says, you're right, you are unworthy and I love you still. This is the great grace of Jesus that Luke is writing about. And this is what's stirring in the hearts of all these believers. They're not doing a fundraising campaign here. They're not trying to raise money. They're under no obligation to give a a penny. And yet, look at what we read about them. The great grace was upon them all, verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. Why? For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. And then in 36 and 37, we're going to get a specific example of one of these believers. There's a guy named Joseph who we later become acquainted with as Barnabas. Thus Joseph, verse 36, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now that's just one story of many of what was happening. These folks, when they've encountered Jesus in their hearts, this great grace, there's a transformation that takes place. I want to talk about that for a minute. What takes place? What's the transformation? 
So we encounter the great grace of Jesus. Jesus calls us to take the trust that we have in ourselves and what we can build for ourselves, what we can accomplish for ourselves, and to latch our hope onto him and him alone and to let go of everything, to let go of your security in your job, your retirement, your accolades, your position, your title, your household, the, the, the neighborhood you live in, all the things you've worked so hard for, Jesus says, let go of that stuff and take hold of me and me alone. This is what the apostle Paul calls in Philippians 3 is rubbish. I've dropped all this junk to take hold of Christ and Christ alone. And so that's the first thing we're seeing here, right? That as these people have encountered the great grace of Jesus, they've let go of their security and stuff to take hold of him. The first thing I would point out if you're taking notes is this. The great grace of Jesus causes believers to freely abandon their trust in possession in exchange for their trust in the Lord. Freely abandon. Nowhere in the book of Acts are the apostles coming to the early church and saying, if you love Jesus, you'll give your money. If you love Jesus, you'll sell your stuff. They were just doing it freely out of this inward transformation of heart. It was coming out in this amazing expressions of generosity. No obligation here, right? Complete abandonment. And I love this idea of cheerfully giving as we're instructed to do. Joseph called Barnabas, that was his nickname given by the apostles. Why? because he was an encouraging dude. There was something cheerful about the way he served the Lord here. Cheerfully giving and freely abandoning his stuff. Why? Because he had trusted in Jesus. Now, the second thing we see here is that, 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 was, that generosity and response was bent outward to their relationships with one another. The great grace of Jesus causes believers to loosen their grip on possessions and, and to hold tighter to their commitments to one another. So there were two, two ways this played out. After they encountered the grace of Christ, they began to not trust in themselves and their possessions and to trust in Christ. And then what they used to give in terms of time and devotion to accomplishing and to, to racking up possessions, they were now giving to one another. So it played out vertically and horizontally. Now, this should sound familiar to us. Do you remember Jesus when he's questioned about the greatest commandment? Do you remember what he said? He said, the greatest commandment is for you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, everything that you are. And we're seeing that here, right? I mean, these folks are all in loving God, but then what did Jesus say? And the second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That when you truly love the Lord God with all that you are, you will then inherently love your neighbor well, right? Inherently, it will just come out of be a response of the goodness of God. You'll love one another well. That's why John said in chapter 13 of the Gospel of John, he said, the world will know that you're my disciples by how you love one another. And so we see this playing out now here in the church. The apostles aren't up here beating the drum, give money, give money, give money. What are they teaching? The resurrection of Jesus, that in that is our only hope, that in that, by trusting in what Jesus has done for us, we encounter this great grace. Your sins are forgiven. Eternity is secured for you. No, no sermons about money here. No fundraising going on. And what are they doing? Man, they're all in. Dropping their security and stuff, following the Lord Jesus with all their heart, mind, and soul, and making sure what? That everybody has what they need. What's mine is yours. I love uh, the way that John Piper describes this. He says there were two effects of believing in Jesus. This is what he says. Two of the effects of believing in Jesus are that the heart is loosened in relationship to things and tightened in its relationship to people. 
You become more important than my stuff when I'm in Christ. You are more important than my stuff when I am in Christ. Now, I know that's not what we learn in the world, right? We learn that my stuff comes first and you come second. And if I have extra and if I feel like I want to be generous in any given moment, I'll let you have a little, if, right? But in Christ, you are more important than my stuff. Now, from here, what we're going to do is we're going to read a contrasting story in chapter 5. There's a couple, Ananias and Sapphira, and, and I don't believe this is accident that it follows right behind what we read about Barnabas. They're going to contrast what's going on in this early church, okay? Let's read verses 1 through 11 together, and then we'll talk about it. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. Does that sound familiar? Barnabas just did that. With his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and bought and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, if we stop right there, nothing necessarily wrong with that, right? There's no obligation that if you sell property, you got to give the money to the church. The folks we just read about were doing that voluntarily, okay? So there's no problem at this point. The problem's about to come up, though. As, as through God, or through Peter, God exposes their hearts. Look at what Peter says in verse 3. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? You see what the problem was? Ananias was pretending that he brought everything that he made. He was wanting to look like the Christians we read about in chapter 4 without being all in. He was wanting people to see him as all in, right? He wanted people to applaud him for his generosity while something inside of his heart was still very selfish. He wanted to give just enough to receive the accolades without being all in. And Peter confronts him. And look at what Peter says. He begins to ask rhetorical questions to expose the reality. In verse 4, he says, talking about his land, he says, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? So what is he saying? And I, you were under no obligation to bring a penny of this. It was yours. Why would you? Why would you even sell it if you're just going to come and lie to God? You should have just kept it. It was yours. And then after you sold it, the money was yours. Then he goes on to say, Why is it that you have contrived this deed where? In your heart. See, this isn't about money, is it? It's about a heart issue. It's a matter of the heart. Then he goes on. You have not lied to man, but to God. Now, once again, we're getting an example of what we read about in Isaiah, right? Pretending, pretending to be spiritual, pretending to be worshipers, pretending to be all in, pretending to be a follower of God, while your heart is far from him. Now, here's what happens. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and he breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men of the church rose up, wrapped him up, and carried him out and buried him. Now, this is all unfolding pretty fast because look at verse 7. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, Sapphira, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, he gave her a chance, 
Tell me, Sapphira, whether you sold the land for so much. And so he gives her a chance. Sapphira, was this the complete price that you sold your land for? Your, your, your husband came in and claimed that it was. Your husband came in wanting the acknowledgement of being a generous man. He brought us some money and he said, I sold my land and here's what I made. I'm giving it all. But God saw the lie in his heart, right? And so now I'm asking you, was that the full price? And she said, yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young man came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now, if this story is about money, I'm in trouble. I am. If this money is about being perfect before God or he doesn't love me, I'm, I'm, I'm shipwrecked. There's not been a day in my life that I've been morally perfect before the Lord, perfect in my generosity. My wife and I, we haven't sold out everything and, and laid it down at the apostles' feet to follow Jesus. If this is about money, I'm in trouble. But it's not about money, is it? It's a matter of the heart. If you remember what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 6, where he's talking about money and our attachment to possessions and, and the things of this world. And so Jesus makes this connection between money and the heart. And he says this in verse 21 of Matthew 6, where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. What is Jesus saying? It's not about money. It's about where your heart is. You want to know where your heart is? Follow the trail. What are you trusting in? What are you placing your security in? What are you holding tightly to in this life? If you're holding tightly to money thing and that's gonna give you power or security or esteem or worth or value or notoriety, you're sunk, man. The overflow of your heart or the way he says it here, where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Now, in Matthew 19, you may remember this story. There's a, there's a guy who comes to Jesus. He's fairly young, and for his age, he's fairly, fairly wealthy. We call him the rich young ruler. He's a wealthy, young, influential man of high morality. Seems to be a man's man, if you, if you will, in his culture and society. He comes to Jesus, and he asks Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus starts with the law. He talks about the Ten Commandments. These you must obey. And the man evidently had a fairly pristine record. He was a much more moral man than me. Jesus, I've pretty much done all that. I've obeyed all the commandments. And so rather than Jesus just exposing that lie, he could have, he takes it a step further to expose his heart. He said, okay, there's one thing though that you lack. I need you to go home and sell all your stuff, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. You remember the guy's response? It's in Matthew 19, verse 22. He says, when the young man had heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He was not ready to let go of his security and stuff to take hold of Christ. And Jesus exposed that about his heart. So what do we have going on here with Ananias and Sapphira? I think clearly from the text, we've got two people pretending to be all in, wanting the applause, wanting the, the notoriety that might come with that without truly being all in. 
This is what we call nominal Christianity or being fake. Okay? Being fake. Throwing up the facade. I'm I'm reminded of what Jesus taught in um, Matthew 13 with the parable of of the different soils and the seed. So Jesus taught about four different soils, comparing those soils to our human hearts when we hear the gospel. And the first one that Jesus talks about is the path. He said, some human hearts are, are hard like a path that's been walked upon. When the seed falls on it, it doesn't penetrate into the soil. It stays on the surface, and the birds come, and they steal it away. And he compares that to the human heart, that even though this person is hearing the gospel and about the great grace of Jesus, there's a hardness of their heart that keeps them from receiving this message and responding to it. At the end, Jesus talks about a good soil. And the difference with the good soul is what? That it's open and ready to receive, as Joe was talking about in the welcome. Ready to receive the good news of Jesus. And you know it, how? Because roots of faith go down. This thing is alive and it produces fruit. But there are two soils in the middle that he talks about. One is the rocky soil. And he talks about how at the rocky soil, the seed falls on the rocky soil. It springs up quickly and it looks alive. It looks like a Christian, but there are no roots of faith to sustain it. And what happens? It quickly withers away. He talks about a, a third one, a third soil, where he says it's like a seed that drops in among the weeds. And again, it springs up, but when it does, the cares and the concerns of this world, the attachment to possessions begins to choke it out, and quickly it dies as well. Now, I don't know which of the, the soils Ananias and Sapphira are, but what Jesus is talking about is there's, you can hear the gospel, and you can even respond outwardly like you want people to think you get it without actually getting it. And so in Acts 4, we're reading about a community of people who have believed They're not highly moral on their own. They're not super generous, super wealthy people. They're simply people who've encountered the great grace of Jesus and the seed has fallen on their hearts and they've received it. And the fruit coming out of their lives is generosity towards one another. In contrast to Ananias and Sapphira, who are more like either the rocky soil or the soil with the weeds in it. They're springing up quickly. They want to look like the rest of the church, but their hearts do not have a faith that trusts in Jesus. And so this is really not a story about money, as it is a story about the matters of the heart. If you're taking notes with us, so what we see in Ananias and Sapphira is they were pursuing their own glory. Pursuing your own glory rather than the glory of Jesus causes some things, and we see it play out in this story. The first thing that it causes us to do is to make ministry about us. And that ministry includes your church attendance or even your giving, how you serve, how you volunteer, anything that's encompassed in your faith in Jesus. If you're seeking your own glory, then everything's about you. It's about what you want, what you think is best, and about people seeing you like Ananias and Sapphira as a great member of God's household. And so we make ministry about us. A second thing that we do when we're seeking our own glory instead of the glory of God as we manipulate the truth to make ourselves look better. Ouch. There's a good chance you've struggled with that on some level. Manipulating truth, twisting truth, leaving some things out to make yourself look better. And then the third thing I would point out is that it leads others astray. From the story, it seems like the way Peter confronts Sapphira, she's following her husband's lead here. When he, she's, when he says, why is it that you've contrived together? Why did you follow his lead here? Why did you follow him down this path of lying to God and lying to 
his people. And so we make ministry about us, we manipulate the truth to make ourselves look better, and we lead others astray when we're seeking our own glory. Now, can I tell you, this is the great sin of all of humanity, seeking our own glory. From the beginning to this moment, whether you look at Adam and Eve, what was the temptation for Adam and Eve? It wasn't that they were hungry and wanted something to eat. It was the serpent said what? If you eat this, you'll be like God. And what did they want? They wanted to be like God. How about a few chapters later, the tower in the city of Babel? When God intervenes in what man is doing, it's not the fact that they were building a city that, that aroused God's attention and therefore his judgment. What was happening there is they were making a great name for themselves. They were seeking to take the glory of God away from him and put it on themselves. All throughout the Old Testament, over and over again, this is happening. It was happening in Isaiah's day. The religious people were coming into the temple, as we just read, and they were going through all the motions of a good God follower, very proud of themselves. And what did God say? Your worship stinks. Your worship is a burden to me. And we see this in Jesus' day where he confronts the Pharisees who had made everything about them. There's one story in particular I think of where Jesus is in the temple with, with his disciples and people were at that place in the service where they were bringing their money and dropping it in. You remember the religious leaders were dropping big chunks of change in there and they were done in such a way that, the, that everybody was seeing it, right? I'm like, whoa, man, I'm glad, I'm glad he's one of our leaders. Look how much money he gave. Oh, look at that one. Oh, yeah, getting all the applause. But then Jesus points out a woman, doesn't he? A woman who dropped in two coins. You remember what it was about her that caught Jesus' attention? That's all she had. And what did Jesus say about her gift? Those two little pennies are worth more to me than all the rest of these financial gifts. Why? Because God is not after her money. He's after her heart. And Jesus is saying, this one right here, God has her heart. Now here's where I wanna, I wanna land today with this question. Where is your heart this morning? I don't care about your money. I don't care about your attendance. I don't care about how awesome your church wardrobe is. I don't even care about where you're serving. Where's your heart? Let me just ask some questions here for you just to think about. Are you honoring the Lord with your lips while your heart is far from him? Are the songs that you sing just lip service? You're volunteering, you're working, because you know what God would say to you? I don't want that stuff, I want you. Are you honoring God with your attendance while your heart is far from him? Thinking that somehow that's gonna make God love you more? Are you honoring God even with your money? while your heart is far from him. You know what God would say to you right now? Keep your money. Oh, yeah. It's not about your money. It's about your heart. I want to take some time to pray with you this morning. I'm going to invite our worship team to come back up. And my encouragement to us all as a church is that we would take some time to truly open up our hearts before the Lord and to, to take some inventory on why we do what we do. Think about maybe why you came to church this morning. Whenever we started standing to sing, why did you stand to sing? 
Think about the why behind what you do for God. And the question of the hour is this, where's your heart? I wanna pray now, and if you would pray with me, I wanna take a minute to pray for anybody in the room who is not a Christian, that um, today you would realize that you can't do anything to impress God. That's a great lesson we just learned. You cannot impress God. There's no amount of money you could give, no amount of time you could give. There's nothing you can do to impress him. And he loves you still. And today the great news is this, that despite the mess that you've made of your life and your inadequacy and your unworthiness, God says, I love you still, I want you still, and everything that I have is yours if you will simply trust in Jesus. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus has already done everything that is required to earn God's favor for you. He's already performed perfectly, morally. And what Jesus is saying, if you'll trust in me, I'll give that to you. And not only that, my death on the cross and my resurrection is is a beautiful expression of the, the forgiveness of sins that I wanna give to you. That when you trust in me, your sins are buried in the grave. When you trust in me, you'll have eternal life, hope beyond the grave. If you'll simply trust and believe in me. So the main difference between Acts 4 and Acts 5 is verse 32. All who believed were of one heart and one soul. And that's my question for you today. Do you truly believe in Jesus? you want to learn more about what it means to be a Christian and you're willing to talk with somebody about that, our prayer partners will be available in the back through the remainder of this service. You're welcome to go talk to one of them and let them answer questions that you have and pray with you. And for the rest of us, what I want to do is just take a moment to think about where our hearts are this morning. Because see, here's the truth. Our hearts are prone to wonder. Even though we've tasted and we've encountered the goodness of God's grace, our hearts are still prone to wonder. And so this morning, can we pray together and commit our hearts to the Lord together? Father, thank you for this powerful message this morning. Thank you for reminding us that we can't do anything to impress you. This morning, you're calling us to come before you honest and transparently, bringing our our sin bringing our rebellion, bringing our lies, bringing it before you and laying it down at the cross together. And once again saying, Lord, take my heart. Seal it. Make me forever yours. So I don't know where you are this morning but I pray that we could right now gather our hearts together at the foot of the cross once again, proclaiming together the great grace we have in Jesus. Let's do that in his name.